January the 14th, uh, 2018, lecture discussion number seven on the book of Joel. Before I begin today, I have something that I thought particularly, it may not work. I, I have to admit I did, I did test it to see whether or not it would function, and it did. And, but I don't know that the, if it will work when I need it to, so we will see. Huh. I can even get it out of here. It comes in a quite the uh, significant little box, so it must be incredibly valuable. Now, let's see how it does. There's a switch. Technically, what's called a useless box. But this one has what inside? Could you tell what it is? It has a cat. So it's become my new, my new, uh, how shall I put it? The, the, the Chinese make it, in case you were wondering. It becomes my new mascot. So uh, obviously that is appropriate to today's lecture as it has been for the last, oh my goodness, four or five weeks, I guess. One more thing about all of this. Uh, whenever I figured out, whenever the uh, lecture is putting everybody to sleep, I can always turn the box. Uh, and everybody will now pay attention. It does five or six things, but it always results in turning itself off. Pretty much exactly how it goes here in the audience every Sunday. So. So I thought it was appropriate. I have a guy, uh, I, he calls himself ThankSpot, and uh, he, he put something that I just had to mention. He put, uh, how many imaginary friends does the pastor have? And I thought that was very funny, because we always pretend that Super Dave is an apparition, which he, he posited, and I wanted to give him attribution for that as well, Mr. ThankSpot, and it was really clever, and, and I appreciate those things that always make me laugh. Okay. I'm sure you're asking, how many times will I push that button? I know. As many times as somebody laughs. That's exactly how it goes. Am I paying somebody to laugh? Of course I am. That's exactly how it works here. Okay, that's enough of that. By now, you might uh, just be wondering about a few things. And, for example, what does Erwin Schrodinger's Schrodinger's cat paradox have to do with the book of Joel. And frankly, it has something to do with the conclusion of the book of Joel. And that's where we're headed eventually. You also might ask, what are the meanings of Joel 3.3? As, and that, of course, is they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy as payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. What does that mean? Who is that? And why have they done it? Why have they given a boy as payment to a prostitute and sold a girl for drunkenness? And perhaps Joel 3.10 has got some interest. I hope that it has when I brought it up <coughs> Excuse me, a few weeks ago. Uh, beat your plowshares into swords. 
your pruning hooks or your pruning knives into spears. And that seems to be the opposite of Micah 4.3, which is the more common. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So which is it? Is it plows into swords or swords into plows? Or is it both? And if it is both, how many do I have? Is the cat dead or alive? Based on observation. You'll notice this too all the time, and that's what I'm trying to get you to do. Is it plows into swords or swords into plows? What has made the difference? And when have they occurred? One is war, is it not? The other is peace. I have war and peace. I thought that could be a worthwhile book title. Feel free to appropriate my idea. Rest away my idea if you want. You might want to check in the copyright registries. I just some advice there. Helpful as it may be. As you may have come to know now, Schrodinger's thought experiment at its essence is a simultaneous two-state condition confined to a specific location inside of time with a death mechanism that awaits measurement or observation from an intelligent agency. That is his paradox in a Reader's Digest form. I know I've left some elements out. The placing, for example, the creation of the box, which is why I went to the the Chinese government for my box. They have created one that's very nice, I think. In other words, the condition... Of the principle, the cat, if you will, in this particular example, is determined by the observer, the one who observes the cat in whatever state that it is reduced to. And therefore, Schrodinger proposed that the cat was suspended in both states until the observer, by willfulness, and I can't emphasize that enough, a manifestation of the will of the observer. So the thought of the observer occurs, and then the observer makes a physical, I'm sorry, a physical manifestation and opens the box to observe the condition of the cat. And when he does so, that reduces the cat to particle or wave, interferometry. Or in this example, dead or alive. And that becomes pretty significant because those things have to be resolved. Now, last Sunday, lecture number six, I made my usual desultorious examination of the subject. And I want you to expect that to continue. Those of you who have been here for a while, you know that randomness, barely say randomness without aspartame. Immediately now I can say randomness. That is my instinctive default mechanism. That's what I do. The technical term for those who are interested in these things is discursive style. And if you take time to look up discursive style in the Webster's Dictionary, you're going to find my picture there. I'm prominently displayed. Now, the question is, is whether I do it intentionally or I merely do it by force of habit. And the answer, of course, is yes. And I'm too old to change. And so manage your your expectations. 
Anyway, I have long approached Schrodinger's offering of a cat in a box as something that is fundamentally the subject of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, as you know if you've been here the last few weeks. If you haven't, I'm trying to catch you up a little bit. And I have made the case for the last year or better, maybe a couple of years, maybe my entire so-called career, but certainly last week, that everything returns to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. So when you're going through the Bible, you will find Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, literally almost every passage. Now that's called the trail of the serpent or the seed of the woman. Again, I give uh, credit to Clarence Larkin for that. It was not my concept. And if that's correct, if Schrodinger is in fact in the same subjects as Genesis 2 and 3, which I believe he is, then you're going to find his thought experiment as well. You'll be able to see what I believe was the uh, initiative or the what it was that he referred to, the inspiration for Schrodinger. Now, I hope that it was. I hope that he recognized that he was replicating Genesis 2 and 3. He may not know that. I expect that it could be either yes or no. But let's let's throw a little bit more at the dry erase markings. Uh, let's throw a little more dry erase markings at the whiteboard here today and see if I can start to bring it into focus. Consider, if you will, Schrodinger's options. If the cat is alive, if he opens the box and he sees the cat is alive, so he has chosen or reduced the cat to alive by his observation. It's no longer in two states. It's no longer in suspension. It has been reduced to one. So the the cat is alive. And two elections are immediately available, or two options, if you wish. He can remove the cat. Fluffy can come out of the box with the cyanide. Snowball, sorry. Could it be Fluffy Snowball or Snowball Fluffy? So the choice becomes, the decision, the willfulness becomes for the observer to remove the cat because he had to physically put the cat in place. Now he can remove the cat physically and therefore the cat is maintained in an alive state. Or he can put the cat or remove, let the cat stay and reestablish the superposed or the superposition status quo. Now, when I say that he can remove the cat and maintain an alive state, I ask this question. Is the outside of the box state different from the inside of the box state? So that's your question for the day. Because if I take the cat outside of the box, what have I changed for the cat? I've removed imminency, haven't I? Because I have an imminent situation, I have a very short period of time for that cat to remain alive if the box is not removed or if the box not opened and the cat determined to be alive. But if I take the cat outside of the box, then what happens to the cat? All I've added is more time. So the only thing that changes between inside the box and outside of the box is time. Do you understand what I'm saying? How long will the cat live? Let's put it that way. 20 years? 
So what is the difference between being outside of the box and inside of the box, I guess is my point. Has the death mechanism been removed? Is that making any sense to anybody? Do I have to push the button? <laughs> oh, somebody, let, let the internet audience that has already changed channels know that over here somebody wants to see the cat in the box thing. Keep going. Let me put it this way. Let's see if I can. I have a box. Oops. And I have a cat inside my box. Man, that is some fantastic artwork. I have made the body of the cat identical to the head of the cat with regard to perspective. That's got to be, that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. I know it is. I've seen, I've seen stuff that's every bit as, as, as good. Now, here's the cat over here. I'll make the head a little smaller. Uh, fat cat. What is the difference between the cats? This one is dead. I'll declare him dead by observation. What is this one? Is it dead or alive? That's the question. Okay, so let's now let's change directions again randomly. What if I, well, let me back up. If I discover the cat to be alive, then I can have those choices again. I can reestablish the superposed status quo and put the cat back in jeopardy if you wish to think of it that way, or I can let the cat outside of the box and remove the imminent jeopardy of the cyanide. Now, what is what is accessible if the cat is determined to be dead? If the cat is dead, can I reestablish the superposed condition with a dead cat? See, it appears that death will end, for this cat, certainly, the ability to be in a superposed, a superposition, or a suspended state, to be in two concurrent simultaneous states, according to Schrodinger. When he sees that the cat has been, had been killed by the cyanide, that ends the experiment. When the cat is alive, the experiment can continue. Does that make any sense at all? I'm trying my best. Obviously, I find this to be intriguing. Schrodinger needs a different cat if the cat is dead. I think that's fantastic. Because death has intervened, Schrodinger has to have a new cat, if you will. A different cat. We have to go from Snowball to Fluffy. He's in trouble. Death has come, and the the thought experiment, or in this case, uh, the manifestation of it, has to change. And that is fantastically interesting to me. It's my, my, my. To quote Joe Kinda. So now, why has the physical death of the cat brought cessation to the superpositioned condition? Or has it? Go ahead and grant the premise that it has, because I can guarantee you for Schrodinger, he would say yes. 
or for anyone that has the position that most have, they would say once the cat has died, once death has come, that ends superposition. Why is death having this kind of power here? To repeat this a bit, if life is the result of the observation, the condition can be reset. The experiment can continue with this particular cat, with snowball. But death brings closure, or so it seems. But does it really? Which is why I asked a few weeks ago, is the cat actually dead? And by whose definition of death? Schrodinger's definition? Does the observer get to make the decision as to whether or not the cat is dead or alive? Is it the definition of the one who observes all things that makes the decision? In other words, I have an absolute observer, to quote Isaac Newton. Here I have me, or Schrodinger, or some uh, lab assistant. Obviously, the cat is a living soul. Is it possible for a living soul to die? That's where we're headed now. What is the definition of dead, and what is the definition of alive, and how is it... um, How is this proposal actually fitting the actual definitions? Again, whose definition of death are you applying? If you're saying the dead, the cat is dead, what is your definition of death? If you're saying the cat is alive, what is your definition of alive? See what I'm trying to make you do? I hope. And more obvious is the Entrance now of resurrection into Mr. Schrodinger's concept here. I hope you follow how I have leapt to that. If you haven't, again, I gave you a disclaimer at the beginning that this might appear to be a little disconnected. The superposed status can be reset if the physical death of the body of the cat occurs if I resurrect the cat. Why didn't Schrodinger consider or anybody consider that I can resurrect the cat? They don't consider resurrection as an applicable element of this. Why not? I suspect Irwin failed to account for resurrection in his thought experiment. Why would he have done that? Why should he, most will say to me. I get this a lot. Uh, Not a lot. No one talks to me about this anymore. They used to when I was younger and they thought I was interesting. But now that I am old, they neglect me. Wisely so. I might be missing some advertising revenue because I have put my box in front of it, but that's okay. They will ask me all the time, or used to, why should he have considered resurrections or resurrecting the cat? Most atheistic evolutionary philosophers, all of them, frankly, would ask or would say resurrection is not a viable component. You don't consider it because there's no viability of resurrection. There's no such thing as resurrection. There's no hope of resurrection. And they will continue that death is omnipotent, decisive. They argue that constantly. I never met an evolutionist that, that says anything other than nothing can subjugate death by outside force. In other words, death by outside force cannot be defeated. If you have death by outside force, you're dead and you remain dead, and there's nothing but dead, by their definition of dead. In this case, the outside force, death is brought by 
poisonous gas and a mechanical hammer. So to continue the emphasis, if the cat is reduced to alive as defined by Schrodinger, now I'm asking you, do you have the same definition as Schrodinger? The experiment is essentially unaffected in the sense it can continue. Time is allowed to proceed. Additional time is the only factor that has adjusted. But if the cat is reduced to death as defined by Schrodinger, then time stops for this particular uh, experiment. And note the implication, the philosophy of that, if you will. As an aside, I'm able to substitute Einstein's similar proposal that utilized detonated or undetonated explosives. And I, re I referenced that a few weeks ago. If detonation occurs or is observed, additional dynamite would seem to be required in order to reestablish the superposition of the uh, explosives. And with that said, I submit it's far less a task to, uh, I submit it is far less a task to go out and accumulate every exploded particle, find every one, every shred of that explosive, and reassemble it to its previous unexploded state. It's far easier to do that than to resurrect a cat. The explosives are mere physical systems. The cat includes the spiritual reuniting with the restored physical body. I'm asking you, what is the totality of resurrection? How is it done? What is required? If you have the totality of resurrection... Now you are on to the definition of what is alive and what is dead. Again, I ask you, what is the difference between the dead cat and the dead cat? See what I did to you? The difference is what? This one is dead inside the box. This one is dead outside the box. All I'm waiting for, if your definition of death is the same as the evolutionary monists, then all we're waiting for is the cat to be revealed as dead. Hopefully that philosophy is beginning to, you're beginning to become acquainted with it. I'll give you insight into my eccentric, some would say twisted, ignore those people, mind. I used to ask when discussing Erwin Schrodinger's paradox, has anyone ever claimed to resurrect a dead cat? Because they would ask me, why do you introduce resurrection into this cat experiment? And I'd say, well, it belongs here. Because if I want the dead cat to continue, I have to resurrect the dead cat. How many times can I resurrect a dead cat? Well, the answer for me is none. I can't resurrect anything. What, are you crazy? But let's put it into a Christology for a, now, for a minute. How many times could Christ resurrect the cat? Would he resurrect it to a dead state or a live state as he defines dead or alive? But anyway, for that's again, that's my eccentricity, and it, and it always caused people great problems. Let's uh, go on. Has anyone ever claimed to resurrect a dead cat? Do you know anyone who said, I have the ability to resurrect a dead cat, or any animal for that matter? I have the power to do that. 
Has anyone ever walked into an animal shelter that you're aware of, asked for the body of a euthanized animal, which would be euthanized by what means? See Schrodinger, be some kind of poisonous system, right? Would it be a mechanical device that takes... I, in every animal shelter that euthanizes animals, I have Schrodinger's cat. See? Has anyone ever gone to an animal shelter, asked for the bodies of euthanized animals and performed a resurrection, or even presented the claim that they had done so? Have you ever heard of it? Anyone that has heard of it, never raise your hand. I submit that it has never happened. I submit you will not find anyone who has claimed to resurrect a euthanized animal. Which leads me to ask the most overwhelming, obvious question of the obvious questions. Why not? I believe I can answer why not. I'm positive I know why no one has ever claimed to resurrect a dead animal. You think about it. You'll come up with my idea, I'm sure. Because I've trained you to be weird. And you don't even know it. Let me prove it to you. Right? This is some kind of mind-altering device. You know it is. And you're fascinated by it, aren't you? You want one, don't you? I don't blame you. They actually make ones that all they do is you put a, you put a little finger on it that you buy from a magic store. You know you know, you know how they they hide the handkerchief in the hand. Of course they have a, they have a yeah yeah we all we all fool the grandkids with those. But you can buy a little rubberized finger that's hollow and you can slip it over the mechanism and this finger will come out and shut the box off every time. People will play with that for years. We call them never mind. We call them. Actors and actresses, that's uh, athletes, never, never mind. That's me being bitter again. But again, never have you seen on a church sign or in a church bulletin or any kind of church advertising, bring me your dead animals. We have someone who will resurrect it this Sunday. You have never seen that. And it has never been done. And I know why. You think about why. Why is there never anyone promising that they have the power, they possess the power to recognize, I'm sorry, to resurrect a dead animal? Bring me your roadkill. How come that's never advertised? Anyway, all of this exercise leads back to Revelation 9, 6, doesn't it? In those days, men will seek death and will not find death. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. If that is all I'm able to accomplish in the book of Joel over the next few months, is that you understand that verse and have thought it through and recognize how important it is, then I have done my job. During 9-6 of Revelation, if somebody puts a cat in a cyanide box with a mechanical mechanism, that cat does not die, as Schrodinger defines death. I'm asking you, before he put the cat in the box, is the cat dead or alive? Remember that. As Schrodinger defines death, or as death is actually defined, our life is actually defined. 
Let me put it this way. If God is looking at this world right now, does he see life or death? He's outside of time. The answer would be what? Never mind. I won't tell you what the answer is. You will tell me what the answer is. But during 9-6, as Schrodinger defines death, the cat in the box does not die. The cyanide's released, the capsule broken, the Geiger counter detection mechanism activates, hammer comes down, cat doesn't die. As Schrodinger defines death. Death now is powerless in Revelation 9 and 6. It can't have any effect. It doesn't have any effect. Death is now rendered identical to what we call, or what Schrodinger would define as life. It's identical now. And that neither life or death can impact the experiment. If the cat's alive, I can continue the experiment. If the cat is dead, well, the cat can't die, so I continue the experiment. Death has been eliminated as a factor. I can have hundreds of thousands of fluffies and snowballs and none of them will die. No matter how much cyanide I pour all over them. Notice what I have done here. I have said death will flee from man. And I have defined it as death will flee, period. Man cannot cause death and man cannot die. What's the food supply? Who? How many die from starvation? How many die from drowning? How many die from age? Death has fled. Five months. It is the most extraordinary thing to consider in all of the book of Revelation, in my view. So, death is powerless. Death is now rendered identical to life as it is defined by Schrodinger. Are you tired of me saying that yet? And that neither life or death can impact the experiment. Time is adjusted. Death has fled, but and only life remains. All observations now result in life for five months, 150 days. Now, some think that Revelation 9-6 does not have the meaning that I have given it. They will say to you, well, humans can't die. That's the compromised view. But animals, we, humans can continue to kill animals. There's all kinds of death going on. And I will say to them, uh, I'll counter. Actually, they'll even say the, the further view that doesn't have the meaning that I assign to it at all. And then to which I'll can't counter by asking, which view of Revelation 9-6 is the highest view? Because I have a tendency, well, okay, I don't have a tendency, I always go to the highest view. The highest view of Christ, that's the one that I say is true. The highest view of God, that's the truth. There is no difference between Christ and God, so the highest view of Christ God, Jesus God. That's the one that I say is true. By this I mean of the positions, interpretations of 9-6 of Revelation that are presented, which one is the true literal? Not only does it have to be the highest view of Christ, but it also has to be the true literal. By that I mean which one insists that Revelation is absolutely true and literally says exactly what it says. Which one does that? I couple that with the highest view of Jesus Christ. Christ is doing this. He is the one that has removed something for five months. Why did he remove death? As Schrodinger defines it, I shouldn't quit pick on Schrodinger anymore. Let's pick on uh, let's pick on evolutionary philosophers. 
I'm, uh, he may not at all. He may be mad at me right now. Of course, he wouldn't be. He would be very, uh, if, if he is a saved man, and I wish, I wish for all to be a saved man. Did I mention that a while back? I, I, I know I did in passing to somebody. I, I, I took a lot of abuse for pointing out that uh, there have been brutal human beings that have repented. Brutal. And people have said there's no possibility they can be saved. And I have said I want them to be saved. Why do you want these brutal, evil human beings to be saved? Because. I want grace to be overwhelmingly powerful. I need as much of it as I can get. Somebody said, well, you just want the standard to be really low for getting into heaven. Yes, I do. And I'm thrilled when someone is saved that is profoundly wicked. That's amazing. That tells you what kind of God we worship. As a professional, I will now try to find myself where I'm supposed to be. Which of these positions is the highest view? Which is the literal true or the true literal as opposed to those that are uneasy with the suspension of death? I'll talk to these guys, these women, all the time. These theologians will say it can't be an actual total suspension of death for five months, 150 days. They'll wish to place an allegorical meaning to it or allegorical meanings. They'll say that death is really not death here at 9-6 of Revelation. Death is actually an emotional feeling because they love emotional feelings. I'm saying it's really death. They're going, no, it's a feeling. It's despair. Men are despairing. Well, wait a minute. If death is despair, and men flee from what? Death? They flee from despair? They're happy about getting stung? Makes no sense to me. Again, which view rises to the level of woe? Which is an extraordinary sign? Because this is the woe, the first woe of the three woes. Which view is so complex, it is so challenging to our understanding that we can't solve it? That's the one I believe is going to be true. I submit that it is, it's that which concludes the literal ending of physical death on earth for 150 days of everything. That's amazing. Consider what is required, how much power is required to bring total secession to all physical death on earth. What's required? How does that happen? Who could do that? If you witnessed that, what would you think? This is a natural man-made occurrence. This is evolution. This is uh, an astronomical uh, anomaly. Remember, the purpose of the tribulation is to save as many people as possible. What does that? Not only did the cat not experience superposition, it is only in a life state. Cyanide is expensive. Schrodinger and his crews are going through a lot of it and it ain't working. 
His dedicated observers, they need no precautions. You just think about the response of the of, of people after, a, let's say it takes them a couple of weeks to get used to the fact that no one's dying. No one. Has it ever been in a, has the earth ever been in a situation where nothing has died? Yes, it has. Is this just the return to that? Where is it that a situation has occurred where nothing has died? Nothing. Who did that? Who established a situation? Who made a box that nothing died in? And he's doing it again. So he's proving to you that this is absolutely, without any question, positively true. That's the only book anywhere ever written that says there was a condition of absolute life with no death. How long did it go on? How long before Eve died or the woman died? Do you think 150 days? I will disagree with you. We'll get to that as time goes by. My whole point is, is this isn't the first time it's happened. It's happened before. And now it's happening again. I want you to think about what is required to bring total secession to all death on earth. Where there's only a life state, there's no possibility that anything will die. Let me ask you a few things. Does the cat have existence? Can existence be converted to non-existence? Is there such a thing as non-existence? So so existence cannot be converted. God does this. God proves this for 150 days. He proves that non-existence is impossible. If non-existence is impossible, and it's a contradiction in terms, if death is not powerful, if death is a temporary condition, if death has no impact, That's what God's doing. He's showing that death has no impact. Right now, we are convinced that death is incredibly impactful. God proves for 150 days that it's absolutely meaningless in the sense that it is not anywhere near as powerful or as extraordinary as we think. What's the consequences now of rejecting Christ? It isn't physical death. It is what God defines as death as opposed to the evolutionary philosophers. Okay? Moving on. Let's throw some more stuff that should be uh, slipped into the pile, I guess would be a good way to present it. Adam was out of the garden. God makes a garden. There's his garden. Imagine the earth. That's the garden. Adam is outside of the garden. I think uh, 50,000. Go ahead, submit bids. Cliffside.com or whatever it is. Do we have a cliffside.com? No, we don't. We have a cliffside.org, right? Okay, well, I probably lost a 
couple of beds right there. Adam is outside of the garden. He's created outside of the garden, and he is placed inside of the garden by God. God does this. What's your first question? Why did God make him outside of the garden and place him inside of the garden? What is he trying to say? That's Genesis 2, 7 through 6. Out of the garden, put in in the garden. So let's go out and let's go in. The order is defined. God formed the body of Adam, breathed into the body, the spirit, the breath of life. Next, God planted his garden. So Adam is made and the garden is planted. Uh, What is Adam doing while the garden is being planted? How long does this take? Obviously, God can do it really fast or he could do it as he wishes. Is Adam hanging around outside of the garden? Going, wow, that's interesting what you're making for me there. When's it going to be done? Are we there yet? How long did this go? And he planted the garden eastward from where Adam was formed and gave the breath of life, and then he placed Adam into the garden. So Adam was out. Adam was placed in the garden. Next, we have Genesis 3.23. What happens there? Adam is driven out of the garden. So I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. Out, in, out. Does Adam ever return to the garden? Does God replant the Garden of Eden? Is Adam restored to the original garden reestablished? Let's go now to Israel. If you count Abraham as Israel, and I think that's appropriate, Genesis 12, we start with Abraham as opposed to Jacob. Abraham is out of the land, Genesis 12. And then he is in the land, Genesis 13, 12. Jacob leaves the land, Genesis 28, 10 through 15. Jacob returns, Genesis 34, 18. Joseph is taken to Egypt, Genesis 37, 28. Out, in, out, in, out, in, out. Joseph's bones are brought back, Genesis 50, 26, Joshua 24, 32. I could continue, but you get the point, I hope. Out, in, out, in, out, in, out, in. Why is this happening? What are the meanings of this? What is the meaning of this? What is symbolized by being in the land or in the garden? Conversely, what is is the extended, if you will, the deepened significance of exile from the land, the promised land? What is the promise? I have a promised land. What's the promise of the promised land? What does it mean? What is the meaning of all of this? Remember, God sentences his nation of Israel to 40 years of wandering for refusing to enter into the promise. You know the story, Numbers 13, 31, Numbers 14, 1 through 4, Numbers 14, 26 through 33. All you have to know is Numbers 14. The Internet likes all those little numbers. Get it? Joke? God calls them in Numbers 14, 26. 
Let me get the rest of it here. Numbers 14.35. God calls Israel for refusing to enter into the promised land. See what I can do here? Israel refused to be placed into the promised land. They stopped. He calls them evil for that. This evil congregation. They did not want to go. On the basis of, of what was the reason? Do you remember the story? I hope you do. They saw giants there. And they didn't believe that God could handle the giants. Did God see giants? Okay, here. I'm going to show you the perspective that God has. Here is the size of an Israelite soldier. Right here, you see it? Okay, there it is. Do you see him? And next to him, I'm going to put the giant. Okay, everybody watching? There is the size of the giant. Okay, what is the difference in the size of the giant to the Israelite soldier? But the Israelites saw a tremendous difference, and they didn't believe that they could take on the giants who probably ate the Israelite soldiers if they could. That's the legends. That's the mythology, if it's in fact mythology. In other words, they fed on human people. That's a redundancy. Don't write me. I really appreciate... Here's a deviation from the subject. I love these commercials now that says, these are real people, not actors. And I go, oh, wow, that is very profound. Have you seen them? That's exactly what they say. These are real people, not actors. And I go, fantastic. Because I have never thought an actor was a real person. And I think that's been validated. I am just stunned at the garbage, philosophical, political, economic garbage that is coming out of the entertainment profession. Is it unexpected? No. What's stunning is that we live in a society, a culture that has elevated these people. Am I ranting? I'll stop now. But I love the commercial. I cheer whenever it's on. Somebody's got it right. If any organization in this country... Did you watch the actors giving themselves awards? If any organization deserves to be scorned and... and Expunged. It is this community of people. I forget, they're not real people. They're actors. Israelites did not believe God. For this, they are identified as evil. Wow, that is what? That is, of course, Genesis 3, isn't it? If you don't believe God, that's evil. Knowing good from evil. They thought that the, that God was evil, as you know. They accused him of bringing them out of Egypt for the sake of killing them in the wilderness, or in this case, of the killing them in the promised land. They're saying the promise is not a promise. We don't believe the promise. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and God identifies them as evil. So, to reframe, reframe the issue, Israel does not believe God can defeat the giants of Canaan. They wail in despair. Well, i got a little time. Let's read some of that. It's extraordinary what they do. I've read it before, but now it's back up again because we're in Joel. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. 
And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, if the whole congregation says to them, if only we had, how many is whole? If only we had died in the land of Egypt or if we had died in the wilderness. Uh Oh, I have death and alive in places again. Here we go again. Genesis 3. Or if only we had died in the wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword and that our wives and children should become victims? In other words, the wives and the children would become victims of who? The giants. What kind of victims were they going to be? And then they say this. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader. Repeat that. Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. Think through that for a minute. The unexpressed aspects of let us select a leader and return to die in Egypt. And note the response of Moses and Aaron. They fall down. They go, oh, no. They immediately, Aaron and Moses did, they knew, they understood the intimated elements. If a leader is chosen, a new one, what becomes of the old ones, the previous leader? What do the new leaders do to the previous leaders? Who selected Moses and Aaron? Duh. Omniscient, infinite, omnipotent creator God did that. And the congregation would rather willfully will choose to reject Moses. They will choose to kill Moses and Aaron. And Moses is leading them to promise I'm going to change promise to life as God defines life. The promise is the promise of life as God defines life. Moses and Aaron are leading Israel to life. And they say, no, we want to return to death. And we'll select a leader that will lead us to death. Where am I now? Moses, Aaron, leading them to life to promise. And instead, they will kill Moses and replace Moses and Aaron, the prophet and the high priest. Moses is the prophet. Aaron is the high priest. That's the first and second offices of Jesus Christ, God himself. They're going to replace the prophet and the high priest with a usurper, a rebel, someone who will redirect them, turn them back to death. Who is that? And God intervenes, doesn't he? Forty years of wandering. And why does he do this? He essentially annuls the plan of the rebels who openly despise the promise. Numbers 14.31, he calls it, he calls it infidelity. And he puts them into the wilderness for 40 years. And intermixed prominent in this account is the dramatic theodicy of the intercession of Moses, which is 14, uh, 1 through 25. Actually starts at 11. 
Moses is the mediator between the evil. Apparently last week, I called last week January the 17th. My lovely wife told me that uh, in very kind terms, I'm showing no diminished capacity whatsoever. Except for these small things. I just made numbers 14.11, 14.1. Moses is the mediator between the evil, unbelieving nation of Israel and the holiness of God. Moses is a defined type of Christ here. Here, This is Genesis 15. This is the light in the furnace, the mercy of God and the justice of God portrayed in 14.11 through 25, where God is showing us in humanistic terms how he must resolve his omnipotent love and his omnipotent holiness. And ultimately, the people who would kill the prophet of God, Deuteronomy 18.15, are nonetheless pardoned. They're pardoned. Do you see that? They're saved from their desire to die in Egypt. He does it by force. He has to force them to live. They won't allow Moses to lead them into life, so instead they wander around aimlessly, randomly. We call it discursive style. It took a long time to get to that joke. Twelve pages. I want you to know how hard I worked on that. So what then is the sentence of wandering in the wilderness is compare it to death as God defines death in Egypt. He doesn't let them go back in Egypt to Egypt. He makes them go into the wilderness where they die as Schrodinger would define death. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is long suffering and abundant in mercy and forgiving. What is the wandering in the wilderness? Is it better than death in Egypt? I would say it is. Did the children become victims? No. The children became the second generation of Israel that took the promise. Led by Joshua, who is also a picture of Christ. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy and forgiving. As we should always expect, this literal history contains extraordinary doctrinal truth. But for now, notice the components. God places the evil congregation, the despisers of God, those who desire a replacement of God. He puts them into the wilderness. He places them into the wilderness. He puts them in, not into the promised land, but into the wilderness. Notice how he does this. He's always placing Instead of the garden, the wilderness or the desert, where they die, as the evolutionary philosopher would define death, and their children whom they said would be victims of death. However, they go on to life. So a place of death and a place of life and a time period. How long in the place of death? Forty years. Mr. Schrodinger, I suspect, would recognize the pattern, the Genesis 2-3 pattern. I'm positive he would. Which returns us to a question from last Sunday, in case you were thinking that I intentionally forget all my questions. If I have intentionally forgotten a question, is that really forgetfulness? Anyway, thanks for laughing. That's applause. I don't know if you noticed that. I have one person that just thinks this is fantastic. And next week, you have to sit in the front row, young lady. You just have to be right up here. (laughs) 
There's a story. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, the question was, why is this necessary? And my answer was, omniscience makes it so. What this refers to is the establishment of the situation in Genesis 2-3. One that is made living is placed into a garden, the garden of God that God planted. God is the only unmade living being, and he makes a living being, and he places the living being in his garden that he plants. And the one that was made to live, Adam, is given, Genesis 3-12, the woman. He's given the woman. To be, I can make a joke there, but I'm going to fight myself. <laughs> He's given the woman to be with him. And thus the two who were made living by the living one are, are in God's place, his garden. And time is elasping. And an instrument of death is revealed, as is an instrument of life, the tree of life and the tree of death. And I asked again, why is this necessary? And as you know, these cause decisions, these trees, willful choices to be made manifest. Choices to believe God or choices to not believe God. Choices to go into the promise or choice, in this case, they're in the promise, to go into wilderness or go into death, as evolutionary philosophers would so define. And some choosings are transitional, some are eternal. Again, the question, why is it necessary? Because it's clearly necessary to do it this way. God's omniscience demands that to be true. Now, setting aside for now the proving of existence by the revealing of free will, that's obviously here. Though the, you know, the proving of free will and therefore existence is clearly the central point. I can't emphasize that enough. Especially with the rebel leader of the angelic realm that has chosen evil over good also here. So let's, let's reevaluate it. Let's see. A congregation of God rejects him and selects a new leader to lead them. To what? The implicit to the perhaps undeclared, unspoken, but certainly known aspect of this, the congregation of God selects Satan. That's what they do. They select him, the rebel. And they're going, he's going to lead them. And again, that which is unspoken, if Satan is the new leader, what do we do with the old leader? The desire is to kill The living one, the only one who has life as he defines it, who can give life. The desire is to kill him. The insanity of that, let's set it aside. The desire or the wish, the wanting to kill God, the hating of God, the despising of God, the disbelieving of God, cannot result in the killing of God. God can't die. Life is life. It can't be non-life. The only one who is life cannot die. Everyone knows that. But they still want him to be dead. They prove that by choosing a new leader. They want him to leave them in their life state and in his uh, controlled environment that he has given them, but not participate. That's just simply insanity, as I said. Those that yearn for the death of God know this, and at least Satan knows it. The followers of Satan might have been deceived, but the the leader himself, Satan himself, I don't believe he was deceived. He's chosen by an evil congregation, and he's directing them to a state of death. That's what we just discussed with Israel, isn't it? It's identical. 
My point being, do not disregard the fall of the angels of Genesis 3. They are primary. Ask it this way. This is a trick question. If the angels were unfallen, would there have been a tree of death in God's garden? God planted the tree of death. Why? Did Adam know the tree of death was planted in the garden before he was put in there? Did Adam know the history of the fall of the angels that had selected? Notice what I've done to you. I have put the fall of the angels and the selection of Satan as their leader that's leading them to death before the fall of Adam. Did Adam know that the angelic host had fallen and that Satan had been chosen as their leader, as the replacement? Would there have been a tree of death if... One-third of the angels were not dead, as God defines death. God eventually does what to the angels that are dead? He places them into the abyss, into Tartarus, Genesis 6, 1 Peter 3.19. There's a proclamation by God there. Christ makes a proclamation. What does he say to them? And the answer, by the way, oh, all that way. Is yes, the two trees would have been prompt, would have been planted. They prove existence. What was said, with that said, man is on display for the angels. The apostles, mankind, were a theater, 1 Corinthians 4 9. Mankind is made from dust. What are angels made of? They're not dust. Obviously, as the musicians, any who are still awake, come forward. I have wore the joke out finally. Are you out? Angels saw the making of man from the dust and the breath of life breathed into man. What were they thinking when they saw that? Why was this the only way it could be done? And how come this pattern is constantly coming back in the Bible over and over again? He is beating us to death with it. Let's rise and be dismissed.